Um, but we're in Galatians, starting in chapter one. We're going to kind of finish, get through most of chapter two today. Uh, so here we go. Galatians chapter one, uh, starting in verse 12. Is that right, Mary? Okay, good. I keep saying t- 13, and she came up to me, and Mary's like, you're starting in verse 12. <laughs> and I thought, shoot, I said that two services in a row. Starting in verse, uh, yeah, starting in verse 12. Here we go. Uh, Galatians 1, 12. For I did not receive it from any man. Again, it in the context of last week is the gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advocating, or I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age uh, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Remember in Galatians, if we're going to sum it up in any way, we'd sum it up this way. Don't mess with the gospel. <laughs> Do not mess with the gospel. Paul is like this entire book. It's got all these interesting little moments and everything and these moments where he's going, you're in the family of Abraham and you're all these different spots. Ultimately, what Paul is saying and what he is doing with this letter is he is fiercely defending the purity of the gospel. And he's saying, do not mess with it. Don't mess with it. He's fighting against some people that are trying to add the law to the gospel. And he's saying, this is not good. And Paul goes on to talk a lot about a lot of highlights in his life. And really, in studying in Galatians chapter 1, he walks us through all these things that God's been doing in his life. First and foremost, Paul was set apart before he was born. He had a calling on his life before he took his first breath. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that he is called to the moment that he is in. And he knows it deep down in his bones. He zealously persecuted Christians. So Paul's going, I was set apart before I was born, but I, 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 got, I was so zealous for the traditions of my fathers that I persecuted the church. And he, it's, as it says in Acts 9, he breathed murderous threats. And these were not empty murderous threats. Paul was there for the stoning of Stephen in in Acts. And so you see this, like he sees this as like for him at the time, he's going, I'm zealous for my religious upbringing. I'm zealous for the Lord. I see this thing that's called the, the way that's popping up, which is Jesus followers. And I need to squash it down. I need to push it down with everything that I've got. And that is what he did for a long time until he planned to go to a certain city called Damascus. And on that road, he came crashing into Jesus. And this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember, Saul had an old name. After he got saved, he was renamed Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he falls on his knees. He goes, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in a moment, he realizes he's been doing the wrong thing for quite a long time which I can relate to. There's been many moments in my life where I'm like, I'm doing the wrong thing for a long time. I realize that now, and I'm changing. So Paul has this meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus, 
In Galatians, he talks about for three years, he was in Arabia and Damascus. He went back to that place where he came crashing into the presence of Jesus. Um, Then he went to Jerusalem. He visited Peter. Then he goes back to uh, Syria and Cilicia for 14 years, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And he returns to Jerusalem to meet with leadership. So Paul's giving us a snapshot of his life, of he's been going all these places. God's been faithful to him in all of these different places. But the overarching idea is this. Paul is going, I am called by God to be an apostle for this moment in time. And I believe that deep down in my guts. And Paul is going, I'm not relying on the perfectness of my past because everywhere I go, people remind me of my past. I mean, can you imagine? You've built a name for yourself in killing Christians, and then you show up at a Christian meeting. Like, chances are they're side-eyeing you, going, is this a trick? Is he going to like, you know, what's going on? Everywhere he goes, people remind him. It says in, in Galatians 1, it says that everyone would say this, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So Paul's got this beautiful story of God overcoming this, but he still can't escape his past. It still meets him at every stop. So Paul going, I can't rely on my past. I can't rely on all these things. Paul is the guy that goes, I consider all of that filthy rags compared to the richness of Christ Jesus. And what's hard for us to remember is Paul for us Paul is like the the guy, right? He wrote most of the New Testament. He is, I keep saying arguably, the most um, influential theologian. I don't even think it's arguable. I mean, come on. Like, a lot of people are like, what what about Jesus? Jesus is not a theologian. Jesus, Jesus is theology embodied, so he doesn't study God. He is God, so he doesn't count as a theologian. Um, Paul is the one that is studying God And his input, his ideas are so ingrained in our culture that even in the last 2,000 years, we cannot imagine what our culture would be like if you pulled out the teachings of Paul. He is the most influential theologian that ever existed. And yet, in the time that he lived, he didn't consider himself that at all. Paul, as he's talking about this, He's talking about the church in uh, Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem was like the church, the church. It has Peter, John, James. He calls in this book pillars of the faith. So even though he is going to be the most influential theologian that ever existed, Paul does not act like that. He doesn't feel like that. He's not even aware of it. Galatians is one of the very first books he wrote. Thessalonians, first and second, probably came first. But after that is Galatians. This is an early letter. Paul is just scratching the surface of the impact that he will make for the kingdom. But the most important thing about Paul is Paul carries a deep humility. Paul's aware of his past like any of us. Any of us, when we think about the things that we've done in the past, they wake us up sometimes, right? Maybe you think about a decision that you made even years or decades ago, and maybe you still get like that prick in your heart where you go, oh, I wish I could forget that I did that. And it's one thing when you commit sin that you didn't really understand, maybe it's sins of the youth or whatever. The most painful sins that any of us commit are the ones we know they're not right, and we do them anyway. 
And Paul is sitting here going, somehow I was so deceived that I broke the commandment of do not murder, and I murdered people for my zealousness. I killed people. Paul, I guarantee it, when you, when you hear about this, when we say he persecuted the church, we're kind of like covering over the fact that Paul was there when somebody was being beat to death in front of him. I guarantee he has moments, had moments where he was going, ooh, ouch. And this is why Paul says, I will boast all the more in my weakness. I will boast all the more in my weakness because what I'm doing is I'm telling people if he could save somebody like me, who killed Christians, if I can be saved and be used by God, how much more can you be used by God? This is what Paul is saying. And he's going, that's not because I did all the perfect things. I am called by God. He's the one that did it. It's not me, but it's Christ who lives in me. As he says in Galatians, in the life that I now live, I live in faith, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel is the strength that Paul is relying on, not his own strength. I've been following the Asbury Revival. Have you guys been following that? Anybody in the room? Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty amazing when you see it happening. And I have a friend that's there. And if you're not familiar, the Asbury Revival started probably about a week and a half ago, something like that. I think on the 8th or something like that. And uh, the college, Asbury College, they had a, a chapel service that was probably a lot like this. And they had a speaker, and then they finished with some worship. And then the worship, you know, like in the middle of that at the end, some people started bowing on their knees, and a lot of the students started confessing sin, and that started to build and, and build. And at some point, the leader said, well, let's just keep it going for a little bit longer, because it seems like the students need to be here a little bit longer. And it's been 280 hours, I think, something like that, that they have not stopped that service. It's gone on for 24 hours a day since that point. And I have a friend that went there, and he said two things. One, he said it's real. He said, when you show up in the room, he said, you just feel the presence of God. And it's not hype, and it's not, it's, it's real. He said, you go there, and there's people that are repenting. And repentance really is so much of that foundational piece for revival. But they're repenting. They're on their knees. And he said, then there's like these storms of joy that kind of come and go over the people. And it's not directed by anybody. It's just kind of like the Holy Spirit's just doing something. The second thing is, and I think this is really important for us, he said, I can't point to a leader who started it. He said, I can't point to somebody and go, oh, that guy started it, you know. He was really articulate, gave a perfect sermon, and now revival is here. There's none of that. All of them are going, we don't know how it started, but really pointing to Jesus. Like, that's the only thing that we can really point to. The Holy Spirit started moving and hasn't stopped moving, and we don't know why, but here we are. And it's starting to spill out in the cities around it, and it's exciting, and it's awesome. But it's that humility and leadership, that understanding that we don't make revival, right? Like we can, we can create um, an atmosphere where revival can grow, good soil in our heart where we're seeking the Lord, we're profess confessing our sins, we're doing all of that. But at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit that's got to start it, right? So that we could all point to Jesus and he could get the glory. Paul understands that. Paul is a man that is humble when it comes to his leadership with the Lord. 
One of the things that I think as we go through it, I was reading through Galatians and I read through it a lot. And Galatians chapter two, in the beginning, I was reading this whole section where he's talking about meeting with influential people. Galatians uh, two, one through two, if you want to read that. Um, He's talking about meeting with the influential people. Again, most likely James and Peter and John. Um, And he's talking about making sure that they don't have a division in their gospel. He's like, I want to make sure I didn't run in vain, meaning this. I want to make sure we don't have a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. We need one gospel connected. But in the beginning of that verse, he says this. He said, then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, blah, blah, blah. 14 years. And then that's on top of the three years that happened before. So we're talking about 17 years. Paul's going, look, I was in training. I was meeting with people. I was working my trade while I was learning about Jesus. It was 17 years. Some of us can't wait 17 days for the Lord to do something, right? We're like, Lord, how long? It's been almost a day. How long do I have to wait? I was uh, driving my kids to school, and, um, and uh, I was listening to this band called Delirious, and I don't know if any of you remember the band Delirious, but um, Delirious is this weird thing. Like, if you were a Christian, like, in the 90s, like, Delirious was, like, the band. But before that, it's, like, you know, Keith Green and Maranatha, and then after that, it's, like, you know, Passion and Bethel. And, but there was this little moment in the late 90s where this band called Delirious came along, They wrote a song called, I Could Sing of Your Love Forever, and you could literally sing that song forever. (laughs) It was like the song that never ends. It just kind of kept looping. And it was one of those first songs that started to go international. And I loved Delirious. Like, I was a fanboy for Delirious. I was like, anything that they did, I wanted to, like, whenever they came into town, they're from London, so they didn't come to town very often, but I saw every time they came. And I loved Delirious. And I was telling my kids, I remember one day, I was listening to an album, and I was listening to a live album where they were leading worship live, and, um, and I felt really clearly like the Lord spoke to me, super clearly. I was 17 years old, and I was listening to Live 97, which isn't even on Spotify anymore. I wish I could find that album. I should have kept the, the CD, uh, although I wouldn't have anywhere to play it, but I wish I had the CD. Um, and I was listening to it, and I felt so clearly like the Lord said, I am calling you to be a part of events like this one day, be a part of worship events. And I thought at 17, I'm like, great. So like when I'm 18 or 19 or God forbid, I have to wait till I'm 20 because, oh my goodness, 20-year-olds are so old. Um, and, um, and around the age of 33, God opened up an opportunity. And um, me and my friend that had been praying for a long time, Um, had the opportunity to start a tour called the Outcry Tour, and it was awesome, and it was a worship tour, and we ran it for four years. We went to 90 cities. Um, We spoke in front of a million people all together, saw 50,000 people come to Jesus. It was amazing. And my kids came into my life and started to grow up at that point in my life, and they all thought that was really quick. And my kids say things like, Ryan, you sh- or Dad, you should start another tour. And I'm like, like it's that simple. Like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll just start a tour. The Lord brought it to me, you know, and I was explaining to them. I said, you know, I had to wait 16 years for the Lord to really come through on that. And since then, I've heard new things, and I'm waiting on the Lord on those new things. Don't be in a hurry. God's going to use you in the thing that he spoke to you about. 
But give it some time. Paul was very patient. He was very patient in that. So he was patient in his calling. He was confident in his calling. And Paul, he understood the dichotomy of Jesus-like influence. Jesus-like influence. Jesus-like influence is one of those things that's strong and weak. (laughs) It's powerful and also not powerful, you know? It's this weird thing. And Paul walks that line so well. In Galatians 2.11, he talks about that story that I talked about last week where Peter was sitting with the Gentiles in Jerusalem. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. He's meeting with them. He's eating them with, the, with them, which was a big deal at the time. That meant he was worshiping with them. That means he was connecting with them. And then the cool kids show up, the circumcision party. Yikes, not a, not a cool kid group that I would name. Um, um, circumcision party shows up and, and Peter gets weird and he goes, oh, no, no, never mind. Never mind. You know, I'm going to go sit with the cool kids over here. And he dumps these guys and goes over here. And you would think, oh, that's silly, Peter. That's ridiculous. Paul gets serious about this. And he goes, when I saw that his actions were not in line with the gospel, I confronted him to his face. You're like, take it easy, Paul, you know? Just maybe take him aside, take him real quietly, you know? And he's like, nope, I told everyone in front of of everyone. And this is the reason. Paul understands this. Leaders must know that they can cause great damage with small moves. They're serious when it comes to the gospel. So what Peter was doing was not in step with the gospel. Why? Because at the time, there was a a rift that was happening between Jews and Gentiles, and Paul was going, we have got to pull these things together. We cannot let the gospel be broken down into people groups. We cannot let it be broken down along the lines of Jews over here and Gentiles over here. We can't let that happen. And he said, when Paul did that, he led Barnabas astray and a bunch of other leaders that were following him. He said he led them astray by his hypocrisy. So Paul is strong when it comes to the gospel. We have to be strong when it comes to the gospel in our time. And I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been going, okay, Lord, I I don't know if many of us are fighting to have... um, Jewish festivals brought in or the law being read maybe like it is here. Maybe some of you are, and we could talk about it afterward. Um, Paul is saying, look, we can't bring the law in. But the, the heart behind what he's saying in Galatians is this. Do not let things of the culture seep into your gospel and water it down and change it. We all have to defend that. And yes, we have church leadership. Church leadership is important. Elders are important. Church leaders are important. Pastors are important. But every one of you has influence over somebody else in your life as well. We all, as followers of Jesus, have some level of influence over somebody, whether it's a coworker or someone in your family. No matter what it is, you have influence and you have to steward that well. And to do that, you have to defend the gospel in the sphere of influence that you have. And I started writing down some things, and I'm sorry in advance if this maybe pokes on some things that, yeah, I was, I was really trying to think. I'm like, okay, Lord, what are some false gospels? What are some things that are seeping into our gospel right now? And I thought this, Jesus plus anything is not right. 
We can't add anything to the gospel, like, yes, Jesus, but a little bit of the law. Yes, Jesus, but a little bit of this. We cannot do that. And in our culture, I think we're doing this, Jesus plus stingy wealth. I don't know how else to say it. Like a protectiveness over your wealth so much that you do not see the need of people around you. Jesus plus fame. You think maybe I need a, another million Instagram followers and then I'll be important. Jesus plus comfort. Well, Lord, I want to follow you, but I don't know if I want to go all the way over there. That seems like a, you know, a bit too hard. Jesus plus pop culture. Pop culture is not friendly to the gospel, you guys. It's not. I'm sorry, we can't water down the gospel so that people in the world applaud it. That means we're on the wrong path. It needs to... It needs to offend those in the world. Paul says that's how you know it's the real gospel. It's offensive to those that hear it that are falling away. Jesus plus politics. Jesus plus social justice. Jesus minus some things. Maybe Jesus minus judgment. Like, I like the gospel, but I don't like the judgment side. That seems a little too hard. We have to fight for the purity of the gospel. Now, we have to know what we're fighting, pick our battles. If you're fighting with somebody and breaking fellowship because they are a premillennial, uh, premillennial uh, dispensationalist, you should probably take a step back and go, maybe I'm diving in the weeds a little too much, you know? Paul says, don't get caught up in endless arguments about genealogies. Don't get caught up in all the little things that want, you know, make us argue. But get caught up in the gospel, if you hear anything watering down the gospel, you know that that's trouble. We cannot, we cannot let that happen. At the same time, like Jesus said, the, the law is summed up in two things. One, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Two, love your neighbor as yourself. Leaders have to understand that leadership is not power. It's the influence to serve other people. That is what leadership really is. I think so many people think leadership is being in charge and you just tell everyone what to do. That is not what Jesus says about leadership. Not at all. Matthew 20, starting in 25, this is what Jesus says about leadership. We need to lean in really strong on this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, people in the world, lord it over them, meaning leadership. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If Jesus could humiliate himself on the cross for us, is there anything too low for us? If Jesus could wash his disciples' feet, which was highly embarrassing for the disciples, is anything too low for us? This is what I wrote down. Leadership is not tearing down another's power to get your own. I think this is what the world is telling us right now. You gotta tear down those powerful things so that we could build more power. That is not what it is. It's not found in tearing down the patriarchy or other political parties. It's not where it's found. I'm sorry. It's not 
about scaring one another into submission. It isn't found in violence or identity politics or money or fame or manipulative language. It's not reserved for the attractive or the loud or the smooth-talking, articulate communicators. For too long, we've looked at people like that and said, you're the leader, right? And Paul would remind you, Paul goes, look, I'm not real great at speaking. I was beaten nearly to death. In Galatians, he talks about the fact that he had like an eye thing that was probably uncomfortable for people to look at him. Like, he's going, I'm so sorry, in person, I'm not real great. Later on, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Jesus-like leadership is strong on the gospel, but weak on self. It relies on God power and doesn't make room for pride. It's clear on mission, but patient with the mess. Strong in spirit, but lowly in attitude. Jesus-like leadership is not found in climbing the ladder, but it's a race to the bottom. Servant leaders are safe leaders. They're safe leaders to be around. And if you want to be in a safe place in your leadership, just serve. Just serve. Take the lowly, narrow road, and you can never lose. This is the kind of leadership that Paul is talking about, and this is the kind of leadership that our Savior Jesus displayed to us. And all of it's built on an understanding of the gospel. All of it is built on the understanding that not one of us in this room deserves salvation. Not one of us in this room had lived a perfect life, and then we found Jesus, and we're like, wow, it's even more perfect than it was before. That's not what it is. It's going from death to life, repentance over deep things into new life. We're going to do baptisms here in a minute. Before we do, but I would like to pause just a minute. If you would bow your heads with me. <clears throat> Lord, we ask for forgiveness, God. We pray that you would forgive us for maybe trying to change the gospel into something more palatable to those around us. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for unhealthy things that have seeped into our life. Forgive us for idolatry, times that we idolize things that we shouldn't. Forgive us, God. Forgive us for the times that we thought that you weren't enough or to be influential in the kingdom. You had to be perfectly articulate. We just lay that down. And we rest in the fact that you use imperfect people like us. You partner with us to do ministry. And how amazing is that? Jesus, we thank you for the people that are going to be baptized. We thank you for life change that's happening around us. And we pray for more of it, God. We really do open our hands and we pray that you would revive our city, that you would re revive our church that here at Central and Glendale, that we would experience an outpouring of your spirit like we've never felt before, and that we'd have a childlike joy as we walk in it. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We praise you for the gospel. 
We pray that we'd build our life on that. On the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, let us to boast in nothing but that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.